Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? It's good to be here. It really is. It's a joy to be here with you. And I always want to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. So let me pray right now. I haven't in the other two services, but let me do that right now. And you can do something really cool. I do this with my wife all the time. We go prayer walking. And it's good to pray walk with your eyes open as opposed to close. <laughs> Just, I want to be helpful here right from the start, okay? That was free. And it's cool sometimes to just pray with our eyes open. And Father, we can just say this right now. You're here for a bunch of us. Christ lives in us. We died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that cool for those of you that know it? And Lord, this is uh, third service of this day. And I don't want to mail anything in. I want to be right on point with you and listening to your spirit. And I want every person here listening to your spirit too, really big time, Lord. From this young man right here to this gentleman here and this brother right over here and all through this whole group, do something powerful, God. Would you cause hearts that are ambivalent to you to be shaken by you in a really healthy way? Mine included. If I need reshaken, shake me again, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Today I want to talk with you about chivalry. And it's not politically correct because we've got a massive challenge in our culture today. I term it sometimes a gender blender that we're in today. We have confused something massively. In the pursuit of equality, we've gone after sameness, and we're not. Men and women are different. Now, you need to know something. Jesus was as egalitarian as they came for his time. Men women were looked down on. They were pieces of property. They were... You know, they were second-class citizens at best. So when Jesus sat down with the woman at the well, that was a revolutionary thing he did. And that was liberating. Imagine what that young lady felt when she walked away that day. Well, we know she got so radically altered, she went and told the whole town, and many Samaritans surrendered to Jesus. Wow. So we got a problem today. But here's the real dilemma. The church is not responding well to it. We really have two choices with all the gender issues that are happening. We can get angry. But I've found that angry evangelicals do nothing really redemptive with their life. Nothing. Angry Christianity is a stinking dead-end road, man. And you can pound your table, you can stomp your feet till the cows come home. It won't change a thing. However, if we men and women catch a vision for what God wants to do in and through, and today I'm going to say this, in, in and through men and women who are totally equal yet uniquely different, 
And this is for you single men and women here today, big time. Don't be thinking this isn't for me. No, you're here at a better time than some of the married folks here. Because if we can get a vision for what it is, especially men, to be initiators toward our women, because women are primarily in the role of responding. Men initiate, women respond. It doesn't mean you have to be the strongest personality of the two men. It just means you step in. If we can learn to do that, I'm telling you, stuff is going to happen. Because a man that moves toward his woman is a man that realizes an intimacy, yes, even sexual intimacy, that is so profound that the life of those two begin to look contagious. And then you see Matthew 5, 16 come into reality. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. How about, instead of us being angry, how about let's be contagious because we are so living out the Word of God. We can do this. There's a code of conduct. It was popularized in the Titanic, and I'm not talking the movie. I'm talking the sinking of it. The code is branded into history. Women and children first. But this code has roots that reach back thousands of years. And frankly, they are penned in the Word of God. Chivalry, gentlemen, is unbelievable. And by the way, chivalry still gets style points to this day. Just ask a good woman. Yes, it does, she said. It does. So here's the key. we got to remember this. If we're going to have real biblically chivalrous relationships, we got to begin with the Word of God because the Word of God is loaded with advice for how men can be contagious men in our culture today. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 24. Genesis 2, verse 24. And here we find a passage of Scripture that's used not only in Genesis, it's used in the book of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's also used in Ephesians. So because it's repeated so many times, it's got some huge importance for us. In Genesis 2, 24, let me read the whole verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So let's break a couple of things down here. First, if we are going to have dynamic relationships, and men primarily today, I'm going to be talking with you, but ladies, there's plenty of takeaways for you. And, and ladies, let me just say this. One of the most profound gifts you can give a man, because any, I'm going to throw this into this service, any man here that really loves God really wants to be the man that you really want him to be. And what he needs is to be prayed for, cheered for, and when you catch him winning, go, way to go, my man. That's what he needs. A man shall leave his father and his mother. This leaving thing is so important. 
And I've known men, and I've been married 29 years, close to 29 years. For some of us, it takes decades to understand how important it is to truly biblically leave. But we have to. There's three things in particular that I want to highlight that are practical things to think about. First, we've got to shift allegiances a man shall leave his father and his mother. It means that we've got to shift allegiances. Instead of raising the flag of what was mom and dad's, we lower that flag and we raise a new flag for us, husband and wife. That's what we do. Everything changes. So we shift allegiances. We're called to honor our father and mother, but we're not called, gentlemen, let me just say this to you first because you're initiators in this. We're called to honor our father and mother, but we're not called to defend our father and mother. Now, if by way of honoring our mom and dad, and by the way, this could go, we can get caught in this quagmire even when our mom and dad have passed on. But we've got to break this, and if honoring them requires some defense of them, that's good, but you lead with honoring, not defending. You get it. You shift allegiances. It's a new flag that's raised. And you also have to surrender some traditions. And this is a tough one. Because we come into marriage with all kinds of traditions that we learn. Now, I'm a full-blooded Swede. And some Swedes are crazy people. I'm probably in that camp. And they eat crazy foods and Quite frankly, my specific family had some, what I thought was the way families run. That's what you think growing up, right? Good, bad, or indifferent, this is the way families run. Everybody, every family runs like this. And I was raised in a family, particularly by my mom, but mainly my dad as well were committed to this, and that was a principle. If you didn't use something in two years, you threw it out or gave it to someone who needed it. Now, to me, I was raised with that so much, man, it made sense. And I thought, that's kind of like, that's godly. In fact, if you don't do it like that, you're not godly. You know where I'm going here. I mean, things in our cupboards at home were lined up. Boom, boom, boom. Cups perfectly. My mom would stand at a distance and make sure they were lined up. (laughs) No kidding, man. So when I married my bride... Janan, great woman, you got a man that thinks clean shelves are godly and collecting stuff is, well, you got a lot of room for growth in your life. And she was one of the most epic collectors of stuff in Oregon, and I married her. Now, We've worked it out, but over the years, we've had some amazing conflicts about traditions and how things run in a home. And you know what? Sometimes you got to surrender those things, and sometimes it's tough, because when we leave, we've got to emotionally leave some of those traditions that we think we superimpose. That's really almost more godly than her way. That's deadly. I had... Epic stories on this. Our first marriage, our first year of marriage with um, our first marriage. That's a funny Freudian slip there. (laughs) My third wife was a great gal. 
Um, our first year of marriage was uh, setting up a tree, man. When we set up a tree, I, we, I put tinsel over the tree, but you did it rightly. You put one, maybe two pieces of tinsel, never more than two because you're simulating icicles. You got to get this right or else you're going to mess up Christmas, I'm telling you. <laughs> and we got Kenny G playing in the background and, and, and I'm just minding my own business and we're just going along and um, I'm loving it, man. We're married and the tree's going up and all of a sudden, over my left shoulder comes this slush ball, and it hits the tree. And my wife, I turn around, and she looks like happy like a pig in poo-poo standing there, okay? And she is grabbing handfuls of tinsel and, like, throwing it on the tree. And I stood, I protected the tree. I stood between the tree and her. And I said, stop! with Kenny G in the background playing the saxophone. <laughs> if you don't know who Kenny G is, you're officially younger than me. <laughs> and it led to one of the biggest colossal fights you can imagine that night. Now, it's funny, except that if you don't deal with those things, little piles of bitterness grow and pretty quick a wall is constructed between you two. And you know what happens? You share a couple of kids, a checkbook, occasional sex, and intimacy is about nothing. We gotta leave. Sometimes we have to surrender traditions. You say, what does surrendering traditions have to do with intimacy? I got one word. Everything. Because when you surrender those things in you, in your spouse, when you leave, then you, as you'll see in a moment, you come together, but then you selectively grab out what you want and you prayerfully sort it through. And some of those things you're going to leave there. You're going, man, a Swedes, we have potato sausage. Not anymore, you don't. <laughs> it's okay. Shift allegiance to sever or surrender traditions. And then this is tough, but it's real even for guys that are much older, cut cords. And what do we mean by cutting cords? It's as simple as this. Dependence cords are like umbilical cords for adults. But here's the good news, men. And I want you to initiate this, men. Because sometimes, because of maybe business or culture or tradition or whatever, we almost fly that flag more than our own. And we got to cut that. And maybe it requires financially cutting something. But here's the good news. It's tougher to admit you've had dependence cords than it is to cut them. Just come to grips with the fact that you've got them is half the battle. You can do this. Genesis 2, 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, but I love these next few words, and hold fast to his wife. Second thing a woman really deserves is a man that initiates here and initiates here. This is chivalry, man. But here's what's amazing there is something that God does in the spiritual realm that we need to agree with in the practical realm or we're going to get this all messed up. I can illustrate it one way. 
My dad moved to Alaska before it was a state with my mom. He took the Yukon Highway to Alaska in an old Rambler. He had a 308 Winchester, a double-barreled Ithaca shotgun, 12-gauge, and a few hundred bucks in the glove compartment. True story. Before it's a state. And he went as a tent maker to Alaska to teach school and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people in those towns that they went to. He's an awesome guy. By the way, I'm going to talk to him today, and I'm going to report back to him how God worked in your hearts. And he's 88. And you know what he's going to say? Oh, that's so good, Carl. Isn't, that, isn't God good, Carl? I can tell you he's going to say that. He's a giant of a man spiritually. So I learned from him that you got to bust your tail if you're going to live in Alaska. You can't subcontract everything out. Now, back in the day, we dug our own wells, built our own homes. I'm 16 years old. We're building a home in a little town outside of Anchorage called Wasilla. You might have heard of it. And on Was- in Wasilla, there's a little lake called Lake Lucille. And yes, by the way, that young lady from there is a good friend of mine. I've known her for many, many years and her daddy worked for my dad. But I gotta tell you something. When we started building this home on this lake, something happened one morning. And boy, did it teach me a lesson about this right here. We were working, when you work in Alaska in the summertime, and dad says, We're gonna build this house, son, you and me only. It was just me and him. We poured the concrete, we did it all. If you're a carpenter, you'll get this. We had a 12 12 pitch roof on the third story with, I think, the rafters, they had to be scabbed together with double bird's mouths, and they were like 30 some feet long rafters. Humongous things. Big home, awesome home. We built it together. One morning, I'm getting up. The sun's been up a while. When you work sun up to sundown in Alaska in the summertime, those are long, stinking days, let me tell you right now. Because the sun for like 30 days just does laps, man. That's all it does, laps. So I'm getting up, and I'm getting early, and uh, what really scared me is I heard the saw go off. I whip on my pants, and I go out, and I go, what's going on, Dad? And he's standing there on the subfloor. And he's scratching his head, and he's looking a little bit disappointed. He goes, man, we got a problem. And I'm like, oh, no, what? He said, Carl, and he began to explain to me, we were, we were laying out this home with what's called a flip print. I guess it may be called a flat print. Flip print is what I always learned it to be, where you had to look at the, at the print, but you had to flip everything upside down because we wanted a home just facing a different way, looking out over the lake. It's a little bit confusing. So much so, the day before when we were laying out everything and laying out subfloor and putting in stairwells, my dad looks at me and goes, we got a problem, man. Son, we've got a stairwell coming right into the center of your mom's kitchen. I'm like, oh, dad, every woman wants a stairwell in her kitchen, right? <laughs> no, he wasn't buying that. He said, we got to pull it out. I said, we got to pull it out. He snapped some lines on the subfloor. He says, we got to pull this out. We got the stairwell in the wrong spot. I said, oh, my goodness. Now, get this. The day before, I'd put down floor joists. I'd gotten out a caulk gun and put some subfloor adhesive on this thing, one of those big cork tubes, squirting it on there. Then we put down what's called two-for-one plywood or inch-and-a-quarter plywood, heavy-duty stuff with tongue and groove on it. 
tongue and groove, slammed that in there, and then drove in, hand drove ring shank nails. Just the day before, though. So I'm like, all right, we'll get this knocked out. I go in there with a cat's paw, and I pull every ring shank nail out, and now I've got this whole place ready to go. And I go to grab that wonder bar. I put it under there to separate the plywood from the floor joists, and I pull, and nothing. Nothing. Didn't move. I'm like, I just glued this yesterday. And then I start beating away on that thing. Pretty quick, I get a sledgehammer. And pretty quick, I'm looking at Dad. I said, I can't get this out. I was just beating it to death. He said, beat it to death. And I beat it to death. Splinters everywhere. Some of, the, some of the floor joists I had to replace. A couple of the floor joists I had to replace. It was a disaster. What God has joined together, let no man tear apart. That's a beautiful picture of what happens spiritually and why when we mess with what God has done spiritually and don't work that thing out the way he designed, all appears all the gates of hell break loose in our home. Splinters everywhere, man. I want to say this. There's some of you in this room right now that you could stand up and say, I'm one of them. I blew it, man. We tried to pull apart what God put together. I'm telling you, aren't you glad God is a God of grace and do-overs and learn from your lessons and he's not wagging a finger at you today? But go with them, man. Go with them. And hold fast to his wife. Gentlemen, I got to talk to you just men right now. Every woman wants to be held. Not just held physically, but held emotionally. And understand security. And when a man's wife senses at the core of her being that we're holding fast to her, It's unbelievable the return on that little meager investment that you make. Guys, women are dying to have chivalrous men who will just say, baby, I'm yours, ain't nothing taking me away. There isn't just one affair that kills a dynamic marriage. There's a few. Let me give you three in particular. The first one is sexual. That's real. This is real, man. And now we're going to get real honest for a second here. And let me just say that in this auditorium today, there's a good-sized percentage of men who you are getting your spiritual keister kicked by sexual temptation that you've bit the bait on and it's thumping you, man. And you can't let it do that to you anymore. And there's a way out. 
I have found that the greatest way to have victory over the stuff that would divide what God brings together is to be so brutally honest. And sometimes it's tough, men, to go to another man, a man that you trust. I don't care who he is. A man that you trust. He might be an older man in this church that you've seen from afar. You've never talked with him. You need to set a coffee appointment, go to him, and tell him, I'm getting my tail kicked by this. I can't walk forward in victory in any area of my life, professionally, maritally, raising kids, being a, I can't because you can't. And you're tired of faking it, aren't you guys? And you know what I have for you? I have great hope. The tomb is empty. Our Jesus is alive. And through the power of confession, you truly break the back of Satan and you steal power that he had a hold of in your soul. Career is another huge one. I got to tell you something about your wife or young men. I want you to hear me, young men. See some of you in here. A couple of young men down here. You guys got good days ahead of you. You're in the right place in this church, sitting right here, taking it in. Let me tell you something. You need to know this about your woman or your woman to be. They have a vested interest in you doing well in your career. And they may not know all the details. They may not have a clue what you do. But they've got more wisdom than you can, as my dad used to say, shake a stick at. I still don't know what that means. Sometimes the greatest thing that you can do, gentlemen to hold fast to his wife is to say, baby, we are one flesh. Would you speak into my blind spots and I'm going to sit here and take it in and I won't respond and maybe give it a week before you come back and say anything. Just marinate in what she has to say. Man, it can change everything. Just one subplot I feel convicted to say to you ladies that if you have a conversation like that, soak that thing in such grace and mercy. And after you're done depositing what you see into his life, let him know that you're his biggest cheerleader and that you're going to be praying just as much as he's thinking. Another affair that can kill is with kids. Kids are a blessing from God. But sometimes we turn a blessing into something that can divide us. I know that. Our son was so prolific in basketball and such an unbelievable athlete. He's six, seven and a quarter, and he could jump out of the gym. And incredible athlete. 
he played in some of these Las Vegas tournaments where we had some of the top D1 coaches in the country checking him out. It's a long story what happened with him. It's really a cool story of grace. Actually got a little bit of an autoimmune disease. But God, God used that in his life. But let me tell you what God did with his daddy first. I went from cheering for this kid to the point where me as a pastor of a big old church started finding my life in my son's box score. And the day that God set me free from that was awesome, man. Cheer for your kids, but do not find your life in your kids. You're actually getting more lost with every passing day. I want to talk to you ladies about a Proverbs 31 woman, but really I want to talk to you men about a Proverbs 31 woman. Go to Proverbs 31. Check this out. Proverbs 31, this woman's an entrepreneur. She deals purple. Probably had the fabrics out there, man. She was working a small business. She was an entrepreneur of sorts. And in Proverbs 31, 28, we get a peek into what made her so great. I really believe this. And in Proverbs 31, 28, look at the words that we read right here. I'll read them to you. You can look at them and check this out. This is so good. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Do you know how powerful your speech is, gentlemen? And he praises her. That is unbelievable. Carl, you mean there's a direct correlation between this godly Proverbs 31 woman and the words that she hears? You betcha there is. And it's big. Let me try to drive it home with a story from Alaska about a dog named Alaska. I'm going to tell you an Iditarod Trail sled dog race story. On that race, I ran it in 1979. When I came to the starting line, it was the first Saturday in March of 1979, and I'd trained for two and a half solid years for this race. It took me, I made it to Nome, Alaska. I made it to Nome. A lot of people said he's going to be a dead kid out there. No 18-year-old had made it to Nome before. I was 18 years old in 79. It took uh, 21 days, 8 hours, 12 minutes, and 32 seconds. So a little over three weeks. It was a long haul, man. I learned lessons I met with God like you can't believe. It was unbelievable. One lesson, though, I learned after being fatigued on the Yukon River. I was so sleep-deprived that I had actually lashed myself to the sled. I had actually tied my legs to the, to the vertical stanchions of the sled. I'm standing on my runners, and I'm tying myself to the sled, and I just fed my team... And I looked at my lead dogs, and they were twin girls named White Eyes. They, lived to get, they were born together, lived together, raced together, died together, these girls. Two huskies. They were beautiful. And I just talked to them. I said, hey, girls, i got to get some sleep. I'm going to go to sleep for a little bit. You keep going. I think they knew what I, I meant. You get close to those dogs. 
All I can tell you is I kept falling asleep, waking up, falling asleep, waking up, vertically, by the way. And I cannot account for 75 miles of the Yukon River. That's how long I stood there, sound asleep. It was getting late into the night, actually early into the morning. It's 20, 30 below. It was cold out. And we're pulling up to the last village on the Yukon River, and we pull up off the Yukon River. It's frozen, by the way. I'm not doing the Messiah thing, okay? It's frozen. <laughs> and so we pull up onto, into uh, the village of Caltag, and I, I climb the bank, and I give my leaders the command, hey, girls, let's go. And here we go. And then Alaska, he's my wheel dog. He's standing right there in the wheel. He's strong. He's just pulling up there. He's going, this is what God made me for. And I would always cheer him on. Alaska, you're so good. We, so, we stopped the sled. I had like nine dogs in my team at that point. I put an ice hook, pulled it out. It's the emergency brake for a dog sled in case you ever are up there. And I put it down and I stomped it into the trail and went into a cabin and looking for a checker. And there was no checker there to check in my team. Went into another cabin looking for him, middle of the night. I knew they were sleeping. I'm yelling, hey, anyone here? And all of a sudden, I hear this humongous dog fight start up outside. I mean, it was a horrible one, and it was quick. And I sprint outside. I got my headlamp on. And as I shine my headlamp down at my team, as I run up to them, it's just blood red on the snow. Just blood. Some village dogs had gotten loose from their stakeout and had attacked my team and my dog Alaska he wasn't the brightest boy in the team but he was the toughest and he knew it and he defended the whole team he was eaten up in his belly and eaten up on his hindquarters so bad puncture wounds everywhere and I thought I'm gonna stay here a few hours and I said I'm gonna hang here I told the checkers I'm gonna hang here I waited about seven hours got up from a nap sort of massaging him down I go how you doing Alaska and the vet looked at him with me and he goes Carl he can't he can't run he can't walk man he's so stiff I'm like come on man I dropped him I left him at the checkpoint I pulled out of that checkpoint and he was staked out off to my left and he began to do this as I'm pulling away. Oh, 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 oh. And he's just yelling, what are you doing? You can't leave me here. And I put my fur ruff, my wolf ruff over my face. I couldn't bear to look at him. And I gave my team the command and we went on down the trail. It was 100 miles from, 99 miles to be exact, from Caltech to Unalakleet. Went over a mountain range. Now I'm on the Bering Sea coast, Norton Sound. And I'm eating chili in a checker's home a day later, 25 hours later. And I'm eating chili and Alaska's the furthest thing from my brain. You want to know the truth? i got to get to know them. And I'm eating away and a girl knocks at the door and comes in and says, is, 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 she says, is Carl Clausen here? I said, yeah, that's me. She goes, you got a dog loose in your team outside. I walked outside. No dogs are loose. They're all there, all the ones that I brought. And I go, oh, Planes fly dogs from smaller checkpoints to bigger checkpoints. I said, you flew in my dog, Alaska, I'll bet, from Caltech last night. And I walk around the corner, and there he is, and he is pumped to see me. And I talked to the ham radio operator, and I said, he got flown in last night. And he goes, no. We got a report from the checker via ham radio. 
and I'm listening to it for confirmation. Alaska chewed himself free from his stakeout and walked off his injuries 100 miles so that he could rejoin with me again. Let me tell you something really important. Alaska would have never followed me a hundred miles if I hadn't done one thing. There's two ways to train teams in Alaska. One is you yell at them, you bark at them, you needle them, you coerce them, you do everything to keep them moving down the trail. But here's something Joe Reddington, father of the Iditarod Trail Race, told me when I was a young man. I'm sitting there drinking tea, sponsored Tang, so we had tea with Tang. It was a weird deal. And we're drinking this concoction, and he says, I need to tell you something, Carl. Your team will get to, get, get to know them quicker if they're a happy team. I said, all right, Joe. And I trained that dog team, and they ran because they loved me, because I encouraged them. How much more powerful in your marriage? Come on, man. Chivalry, men. Chivalry says we look for opportunities to love, to praise, to speak, to hold. I want to give you three categories to think in. The first would be private praise. The second would be family. And the third would be public. And I'm going to make a confession to you. There's a lot of us in this room that sometimes because we're blowing it here, we'll sometimes say it here or say it here. I'll never forget the day we're on one of our weekly dates with my bride. And I sit down at a restaurant and I said, hey, baby, what, are, what do you think? How are we doing? And I didn't have the chart in front of me, trust me. I was just met, and we were out for lunch. And she made the statement. She says, Bub, I know you love me. I know you love me. And you tell other people, and I hear it. When you're teaching, I hear it. But could you do me a favor and just look me in the eyes and not forget to tell me personally, just with you and me? can do this, men. You will do this, young men. Because Jesus will give you the strength to do it. What's missing? One key thing. <sighs> We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, gentlemen. That is high stakes. And there's so many things that you could cite about what he did to love the church, not least of which was dying for the church. You don't even need to turn there right now. Let me tell you quickly, in Philippians 2.8, just write it down, look at it later, gentlemen, because we find in Philippians 2.8 an unbelievable picture of what Jesus did. I'll read it to you quickly. Philippians 2.8 just says, and being found in human form, this is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But I, I get, 
beautifully hung up on those few words, three, he humbled himself. Men, I'm about to tell you the secret to being a rock solid, rock star man of Jesus that'll have your wife, even if she's not inclined to it, to in her heart at least, be fist pumping excited, thinking to herself, that's my man. I'm about to tell you what it is. And you single ladies, what I'm about to tell you right now, this is your two-part, three-part checklist of what you're looking for before you walk down an aisle with this little budding spiritual stud muffin of yours. (laughs) He humbled himself. You know what we need to be, guys? We need to be teachable. We need to be vulnerable. And we need to be helpable. I know, I made a word. But let me explain this quickly, because what do we find in the Genesis account? He said, I will make a helper suitable for you. He's saying this to Adam. Now, some people think, oh, Carl, you're talking about helper. That's archaic. No, it's awesome. Here's what's happening in our gender blender world out there. They're trying to make everyone the same. We don't understand the beauty of distinctiveness between men and women, and we need to reclaim it again. And if you do, you'll have people knocking on your door going, who's your leader? Because the word helper, the Hebrew word, is used of four persons. Ladies, check this out. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and a wife. Ladies, you are in some very good company. So now I'm going to give you the secret. Gentlemen and ladies, this is what you're looking for. And married ladies, this is what you're cheering for and praying for in your man. Not nagging for, dripping faucet for, none of that. But praying for, cheering for, catch him winning, identify it for. And man, I got to tell you now, I've seen a lot of different men. I've been all over the world. And I've seen a common theme with spiritually great men that leave a rich legacy. And I know you want to do that. That's why you're here. Really great men are born on their knees. And really great men, really great men follow Jesus on their knees. You can do this, man. Your words, ladies, you can help them. And one day, a world's going to say, It sure is confusing out here. And I look at you, what have you got going on there? And that's how we change a world.